Well, if you would look on page 13 of your worship folder, you'll find our scripture reading this morning, which comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. <clears throat> Hear God's word to us. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, you made, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. Of the same things that same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is Jesus, or <clears throat> that is the devil, and deliver all who who through fear and death were subjected to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Oh, Father, we pray you meet us this morning in your word. We pray that we would have a picture of Jesus, our great high priest, who embodies the fullness of true humanity. Help us to get a vision for how that he is our pioneer, the founder of our faith who goes ahead of us in all ways. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning, in faith or out of faith or struggling to hold on to faith, help us to know that he's the one who goes ahead of us. He's the one who has been subjected to death and the devil and conquered for our sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Martin Scorsese made a film in 1988 called The Last Temptation of Christ. It was not well received by religious communities. It was very controversial, in fact. And the beginning of the movie, you know, it says this is not based on traditional gospel accounts. Uh, But that didn't, regardless. So William Defoe plays Jesus. And one of the scandalous parts of the movie is... um, a dream or sort of imagination that Jesus has of himself having 
sexual intercourse with Mary Magdalene. And so that obviously created a big stir, and it was very controversial at the time. In fact, in France, one of the theaters showing this film was firebombed. When I think about this film, and, you know, it's very old now, it's, it'd be, I wonder whether it would be even controversial um, in our, our time, but in many ways, I think the reality of that film illustrates some of the challenges when we talk about sexuality and spirituality and how they relate. And, and on the one side, you would have, say, a, a traditional religious approach which would find deeply offensive the kind of depictions of Jesus, um, you know, engaged in sexual intercourse. That's a very hard, I mean, you don't find any of that in the Bible. It's hard to imagine that. It seems very blasphemous. But there's also, you get the sense often that traditional religious people are most comfortable really suppressing too much discussion about the idea that Jesus has a sexuality. What does that mean? But on the other hand, you, you have, you, you might say, the sort of secular, sort of um, spiritual approach to Jesus, which um, has difficulty imagining Jesus as being a real human being or approaching him as a real human being unless he did engage in sexual activity. And so this verse, in verse 17, therefore Jesus had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In what sense can we think about Jesus as a sexual being? In what sense does Jesus have a sexuality? I think if we're to take that verse seriously, that in every respect he had to become like us. We can't sort of put this question to the side. I want to draw your attention to verse 10. There's the statement that of description of Jesus that it was fitting for him as the founder of our salvation to be made perfect through suffering. And that word founder, I think, is better translated pioneer because the, the word is archagos. It's, it's the idea of the one in the beginning, who goes forward. He, he's the one, and later on, when you, in the next chapter, we'll talk about Moses and taking the people into the promised land, and there's this very much this vision that Jesus and his humanity, he's, he's, the, he's the pathfinder. He's, he's like the Lewis and Clark of a new humanity who goes forward. And in and, and the, and the deeper grammar of this chapter, which is quite complicated, as you probably heard me read, there's this deep sense that Jesus is the model human. He's not just the model human, he's, he is the fullness of humanity. And that reference to Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under his feet. That psalm, of course, is a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and where God creates human beings, male and female, in the image of God, that subjected all of creation And after the fall, we failed at this. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's saying, this Jesus, he fulfills this. He fulfills this psalm that as human nature, we failed to fill. Everything has been put and subject to him. He is the perfect human being. So what does it mean as the perfect human being? The one with the fullness, completeness. What does it teach us about this idea that Jesus was a sexual being? Because that is a part of our humanity, right? I think the first thing we learn is this, is, and I think it's very important, and this text teaches us this. Jesus had a body. Correction. Jesus has a body. It's not that simply that he had a body. 
He still has a body. And he doesn't have just an abstract, kind of generalized body, interchangeable body. He has a first century body. A Jewish body. A body that if you knew the area, you could probably see uh, the influences of Nazareth. He had a male body. And again, our text in verse 14 stresses this. Is that Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, or blood and flesh, he himself partook of these things. In other words, Jesus himself partook of the same things that we do, which is a body. He shared in the weakness of, and the vulnerability of having a body. Of course, you guys know the most famous statement about the incarnation or God becoming flesh from John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, if you're going to make any sense at all of the Gospels as they depict Jesus, He has to have a body. You cannot make sense of Jesus without a real human body. Because what you see with Jesus is He sleeps, He eats, He weeps, He can be touched, He can be kissed. He's stripped and he's beaten. He's pierced and he bleeds. He dies and he's buried. All of that requires a body. None of it makes sense if he didn't really have a body. In the ancient uh, church, for the first three, four centuries, this idea of God possessing a body was a very deep offense because the being of God and physical creation especially human body, they just didn't go together. It was a deep, deep offense. And you see this in the New Testament already. There was, um, the New Testament writers are already pushing back, especially in 1 John, uh, against this idea that somehow Jesus just appeared. like he, he seemed like he was human, but it was more like an apparition. It was called the heresy of docetism. He merely seemed like a human. And later on, in a couple centuries more, you have this heresy called Gnosticism, which Gnosticism is about sort of escaping the body because what's evil and what's bad in the world is the body, especially the human body. And the idea that somehow God, the creator God, would possess a body was just unimaginable. It was like blowing the mind of the first century, right? And yet, our salvation itself makes no sense at all if Jesus doesn't have a body. And the whole witness of the early church is to double down on this idea that he was full flesh, flesh of flesh, just like we are. He's put to death in the body. He's resurrected. His soul is not resurrected. His spirit is not resurrected. His body is resurrected. Why did his body have to be resurrected? Because of death and decay. <laughs> When he ascends to heaven, he doesn't cast off his body and then become the second person of the Trinity sort of before time began. No, he's Jesus of Nazareth, ascended on the throne, and he brings our human nature into heaven with him. See, there's no, you just cannot make sense of the gospel or Christianity if Jesus does not have a body. His body is not incidental to who he is. His body is the very vehicle of salvation. And the early church understood very clearly that to lose the body of Jesus is to lose salvation itself. But not only did Jesus have a body, he had a gendered body. Jesus was born a baby boy. He was the son of Mary. And Luke tells us that on the eighth day, he was circumcised. I like what uh, Todd Wilson, a pastor at a Calvary Memorial Church in Chicago, who 
he has a sermon called The Sexuality of Jesus that inspired this sermon, and, and he has one line that I really liked. He, he, he says, he says, because of the incarnation, God now has a Y chromosome. Facial hair, a higher basal metabolism rate, all the physiology, anatomy, and biochemistry that is distinctive of being male. God in Christ went through puberty. He has armpit hair. He has a ring finger that is longer than the, his index finger. He has a deeper voice than most women in the room. Indeed, God in Christ has the sexual organs of a male. I think there's a temptation for us to want to de-sex Jesus, to, in a sense, deny him sexuality, um, in part because, honestly, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, the way we feel about talking about Jesus and sexual organs and the Son of God exalted above all things, I mean, there, the, the way that the first century thought about bodies and the divine, that's kind of how we are in a little bit. Yeah, you know, that, that just seems, uh, you know, we want to not go there. But friends, you, we, can't, we can't deny Jesus. He was made like us in every respect. In every respect. And so his gender, his sex body, is not incidental to who he is. And in fact, and I know that this is a controversial statement, but I think it's a very biblical statement. Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is male for all eternity. He doesn't have a transgender body, an androgynous body, a non-gendered body. He's a Jewish male from Nazareth. <laughs> and he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now, ruling. In the early church, there was a heresy called uh, Apollinarianism. And Apollinarius was very well-intentioned, and he said, okay, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, indwells flesh, right? But he sort of just takes on flesh kind of like we put on clothes. But he doesn't have a soul and a mind in the way that normal humans do because that, that just seems like he's the Trinity or like he's the second person. That, why would he need a human mind or soul? And uh, the response, and it's in your reflections, you can read it, but Gregory of Nazianzus uh, makes this statement which becomes such an important statement for understanding salvation. He says, if Jesus did not assume a soul... That which is not assumed is unhealed. That which God does, that's what the meaning of, of, of this verse is. That he had to become us like, like us in every respect. So if there's a part of us that he did not assume, like a soul or a mind or our sexuality, that is a part of us that is unhealed, that God hasn't touched. Now, you might be wondering, especially if you're a woman right now, can a male savior save women? We've been talking about Jesus as the male Savior. What does this mean? And here I think we have to turn our eyes to Mary. See, Mary and Jesus go together. In the womb of Mary, Jesus fully embraces and fully assumes femininity, if you want to put it that way. Jesus lived for nine months... <laughs> in the womb of Mary, connected to her flesh by an umbilical cord, and he fed at her breast for who knows how long. <laughs> and incidentally, there is not a zero drop of male DNA that goes into the formation of Jesus biologically, physiologically. This is part of the importance, I think, of the virgin birth. It's all Mary. <laughs> all his DNA is Mary's DNA. No man, 
No male contributes anything at all to his birth. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary that generates Jesus. And it's significant, too, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he announces to her, this is what the Lord has for you. And Mary questions and she wrestles with it. But what does she say? She says, let it be. She gives her consent. She says, let it be. She's obedient. She says, let it be as the Lord wills according to your word. You know, I think as Protestants, we tend to neglect the ministry and, and the witness of Mary. Mary is very important for understanding Christian spirituality. You can't separate Mary and understand Jesus. And to put it differently, you cannot understand the sexuality of Jesus without the sexuality of Mary. You see, what you see in the incarnation is that Jesus' assumption of human, human nature embraces sexual difference to the core. Not just male sexuality, but female sexuality. And what it demonstrates is the inter, interconnectedness, the interdependence, the, that you cannot pull them apart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, In the Lord, a woman is not independent of a man, and a man is not independent of the woman. That there's an interconnection here. And what you have to see is that this text is about Jesus as the second Adam. As a new Adam. And Mary, she's the new Eve. Jesus is a new Adam and Mary is a new Eve. And they're interconnected with one another. And that's important for our understanding of Jesus' sexuality. That it's also Mary's as well. So I think there's a couple applications here that are important as we think about this in our own context. Which is one, the first one is this. Jesus embraces the givenness and the goodness of sexual difference. He embraces the goodness and the, and the givenness of sexual difference. Again, Genesis 1.27, God created the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That maleness and femaleness, sex, embodied difference is part of what it means to be image bearers. And Jesus embraces this. And I think this pushes back against where kind of the gender revolution that we're in. You know, a lot of people, and I know the objections I know are going to be, you know, what about Jesus when he talks to the Pharisees and they're, they're talking about, you know, in heaven, when Jesus says in heaven there won't be any giving of marriage or any children. You know, and a lot of people say, well, this, this shows that we're going to be like the angels. We'll be more androgynous in heaven. But I think this is very short-sighted understanding of what Jesus is saying there. Because Jesus is not saying that in heaven we lose our gender or our sex body or that aspect of our humanity. What he's saying is that in, mar- in heaven you're not going to be married and having children, but you still will be male and female, and it will be expressed differently. It's interesting because you don't encounter the category of race in the Bible until all the way into Genesis chapter 11. We don't have distinctions of race. And yet when you look at what the New Testament says about the new heavens and the new earth, even in in Isaiah, you have this picture of the nations, of actual race and culture being taken into heaven. And so if we don't lose our race and our culture in heaven, if somehow mysteriously this is transformed and becomes praise and glory to God, why would that which God created from the beginning as part of the original creation somehow vanish? No. <clears throat> Jesus embraces the givenness and goodness of sexual, ident- sexual difference as male and female. You know, and I think what's hard for us, now we come back to this question, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be 
um, you know, the sexuality of Jesus, right? Because we know that Jesus never married, at least to all canonical gospels and historic Christian tradition. He never married. He never had children. He never had sex. So what does it mean for Jesus to have a sexuality? And what does it mean for us to learn from him? And, and this is where our, our, we just sort of hit a wall as our culture. But I think there's something very important here. What Jesus does, and, and I've been trying to help, is he demythologizes, if you will, sexuality as that which simply is equivalent to sexual activity. See, our culture is incomprehending to this idea that a person might go through life without actually engaging in sexual activity and still be fully human. I mean, it's a fundamental premise of identity, discovery, and, and joy, or all this, is that somehow you're, you have the freedom to engage sexuality actively as you see fit. And Jesus completely breaks this understanding and challenges it. And, and this is so important. See, the humanity of Jesus shows us that sexual activity is not central to human flourishing and personal fulfillment. Jesus shows us that sexual activity, the act of sex itself, is actually not central to human flourishing and personal fulfillment. And, and to be clear, I'm not saying that it's bad, but there's a way in our culture we equate it with, with an ultimate freedom and expression of ourselves. And the witness of Jesus and his humanity challenges this. So the question that you're probably thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? Right? What does that mean? What does the sexuality of Jesus possibly mean if he's not using it, in a sense? And here I want to point your attention to, I want to give you a category that will take a long time to develop over the months. But I think what Jesus gives us is he gives us a vision of a new creation sexuality. You see, sexuality, as I've been arguing since September, is deeper than simply the act of sex itself. It's much deeper than that. It actually gets and encompasses desire, our desire for completeness, for union, our desire for joy and celebration, our desire for fruitfulness, self-giving, See, all these things, all these deep desires are woven into this notion of sexuality. And when we, we think about Jesus as the pioneer, as the Lewis and Clark of a new humanity, in a sense, he points us to a new sexuality. Not, again, on, before the heavens and earth, that one that cancels out or, or, or says, you know, it's bad within the context of marriage. And yet he does show us and expand the category for us. And so I, what I want to, in just closing, I want to I reflect on three, three, uh, three aspects of this new creation sexuality, which I will you know, probably do, have whole sermons devoted to later, later in the spring. But this sexuality is available to all of you. Whatever your marital status, Whatever your sexual orientation, whatever you feel about yourself gender-wise, this aspect of sexuality is available to all people. And uh, I'll just name them. I think what we see in Jesus' life is a social sexuality, a generative sexuality, and a sacrificial sexuality. The life of Jesus is a picture. When you read the Gospels, it's a picture of a life that is overflowing with loving, deep, 
vulnerable personal relationships. You cannot read the Gospels and not see that Jesus is a man who is connected to other people and has deep and meaningful relationships to other people. And this is why I think it's important the language that our text from Hebrews uses is this language of brother and sister. Sons, again, going back to to, uh, verse 10, he brought many sons and daughters to glory. And then quoting Psalm 22, he says, he is not ashamed. This son of man, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And it's interesting, like, here is the creator of the universe, and he comes and he calls us brothers and sisters. And it's that language of family that's so important, right? Because what is family? Family is a place for belonging. Family is a place for nurturing of life and love and connection and vulnerability. And Jesus has this, and he describes his community, the church, as a family, right? As brothers and sisters to one another. And when you just look and scan the life of Jesus, you see these incredible moments of Jesus' vulnerability. He, at the grave of Lazarus, we know that Jesus has all the power at his fingertips to do anything to raise the dead. And when he hears about Lazarus' death, he weeps. Why? (laughs) He was his friend. Or the scene with Mary Magdalene, which is where Mary pours out perfume on Jesus and he rubs her feet his feet with her hair, which seems very erotic. And this is why people speculate that Jesus had this relationship with Mary. Or you take the beloved disciple, John. He just goes by the name the Beloved. Who is he beloved by? He's beloved by Jesus. And there's a, in John 13, it actually has this, 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 this beautiful uh, picture where it says that, that the Beloved, or John, Jesus' Beloved was leaning against his bosom you have this picture of John in, in the Middle East in that time as it is till today. There was physical touch between men was not seen as homoerotic. It was just friendship. And there was a physical intimacy. Jesus wasn't just like friends. He has physically intimate touch with both men and women that was in no way a violation of his sexual integrity or theirs. Again, it's a poverty of our imagination that we see these scenes. And we speculate, ah, there must be something more going on there. Because we can't imagine an intimate, vulnerable, physically close relationship with somebody that doesn't involve sexual activity. And yet Jesus embodies this so fully, a social sexuality. And one of the things you see about Jesus that's just so beautiful is he's always, and this is, this is sexuality working how it should work is it's connective. It's always connecting. Wherever Jesus is going, he's always connecting people who are disconnected. I love the story of the woman who was bleeding, and she, she kind of charges through the crowd. She's unclean. She shouldn't be in the crowd. And she thinks, if I can just touch, if I can just grab the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. And she does, and she's healed. And Jesus feels the power go out of him. And he's like, what happened? Where, what happened? Where is it? And he... And, and part of it is, he doesn't, and the woman is ashamed, and she's like cowering, and she thinks he's going he's gonna to shame her, and what does he do? He calls her daughter of Israel. He connects her. And you see this Jesus doing all the time. People who are disconnected, people who are outsiders, become connected because of his touch. See, son, that's, that is sexuality. Jesus' sexuality at work, where his life is one of always bringing people in, making them belong.
bringing, bringing intimacy and lives that are lonely. But the other thing you see in, its, in this text, um, which is quite remarkable and somewhat unusual, we often have language of Jesus being our brother and sister, but here you also have this language of Jesus being a parent, that we are his children. In, in, verse, in verse 13, again, it's kind of hard to get because of the way uh, the, the writer keeps quoting psalm after psalm, but 13, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Um, which is a quote from Isaiah 8. Jesus is cast as, in a sense, our, our parent or our father, that, that we're his children. And, and this gets to this idea of, of that Jesus' sexuality is generative. In other words, it's fruitful. There's something that comes out of it. Progeny, offspring, right? I talked in, in the fall about fruitfulness in the image of God and that central to our experience of sexuality is the urge to be fruitful and multiply. This is the first place we encounter sexuality in the Bible where God says, he blesses the man and the woman and he says, be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) That in other words, the sex, the act, you know, the sexual act in a sense is given with the express purpose for generative new life participating in something that brings something into the world that is new. And of course, when you look at the life of Jesus, never do you see a life that is more full of fruitfulness and generativity and new life than that of Jesus. And yet, again, never married, never had children. blessing, we struggle with this idea of fruitfulness. And again, we get so confused. I think sometimes we're chasing after sex, thinking that it's going to satisfy some deep urge, but really there's a deeper urge beneath that, which is a desire to be, to be fruitful, right? And, and, and the connection between blessing and fruitfulness is so strong in the Bible. We desire blessing, and somehow we know that being fruitful is part of having this experience of blessing, and Jesus, he, he shows us this, that what it means for us to be fruitful and to multiply, because that's part of what it means to be sexual beings, and Jesus himself shows this. And I, I want to draw your attention back to Mary. Mary was with, did not have intercourse in order for Jesus to be born. How did Jesus become conceived in her womb? By the power of the Holy Spirit. New creation itself, in Mary's womb, which is miraculous, comes in and brings fruit. And it's the same in our lives, friends. It's the same in your life. Perhaps you're like Mary, or you feel barren. When the Holy Spirit comes in, He bears the fruit of the Spirit, right? In our lives. We participate in this. This is what it means to have a new creation sexuality. One that participates and the new creation reality of God. But let me close with one last, one last um, aspect of Jesus' sexuality, which is a sacrificial sexuality. Fruitfulness in our life is about giving more and more of ourselves away 
or opening up more and more room in our lives for others to come alive in and around us. See, when you have a child, you, you, you have to create this space, literally as a woman, in your very body that pushes out <laughs> for new life to come. And, and, and in our lives, for new life to come, you have to create space. You create this space for, for people to come alive in and around. You see, that's at the essence of what fruitfulness is, and it's an act of love. As a husband and wife do, they participate in this, this structure of creation where they, they love and new life comes, right? <clears throat> and it's the same in the life of Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the most perfect expression of his sexuality. Let me say that one more time. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the most perfect expression, the fullest expression of his sexuality. That word passion we talk about, you know, there's the movie, The Passion of the Christ, or you have all these, the passion play. And that word passion comes from the Greek word pathima, which we have here, which means to suffer, to undergo something. Again, we get uncomfortable when we want to, we don't necessarily want to think in sexual terms or about sexuality when we think about Jesus on the cross, but just pause a moment. Jesus was crucified and he was naked. They, they, they divided his garments. Even art history has rarely been able to look at the cross and depict the cross of Jesus as it really was. There's always a little covering there. Why? Because it's sort of embarrassing to think of the Son of God on the cross with all his stuff hanging out. He was naked. He was shamed sexually. And Paul, of course, picks up on this. In Ephesians 5, when he's giving instructions to husbands and wife, he takes that central act, that central truth of the cross, and he applies it to marriage, to sexuality. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is the bridegroom who comes for, comes for his bride. And why does he suffer? <laughs> as the sort of jilted, rejected lover who's abandoned, betrayed by his spouse. Because in this, back to, to Hebrews, Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the pioneer of our faith, the perfecter, because of the joy, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, enduring its shame. Friends, true sexuality is not about self-expression, Self-fulfillment, self-pleasure, or self-realization. True sexuality is about self-giving. It's sacrificial self-giving. It is to give yourself away to the beloved. It's to die in a sense. And Jesus is our model for that. Let me close with a quote from 1 John 3.16. And to put a little bit of twist on this. By this we know true sexuality. That Jesus laid down his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you give us a vision, a sense of Jesus as our pioneer, as the one who goes ahead of us, who laid down his life for our sake. 
Lord, may you, may you make that real in our lives. As we struggle with different aspects of our humanity, Lord, help us to know that in every way he became like us. He was tempted in every way that we were, and yet he was faithful. And so however we find ourselves struggling, Lord, help us to know that in him we have life and connection, we have love, and so help us to become like our Savior and to grow more fully into his life in union with him. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.